My name is Dave Sattler, and I'm one of the pastors here at North Shore Alliance Church. For those of us educated in Canada in the 1990s or earlier, the actual history of how Indigenous peoples were treated when Canada was first being colonized was not part of our school curriculum. In recent years, many younger North Shore Alliance Church congregants have questioned me. We are bombarded by the story in school and the church's role in it, but why do we rarely hear anything about this in church? So, today, we begin Missions Month 2020, learning from the stories of our Indigenous friends. In 2015, the Canadian government released the results of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a comprehensive inquiry into the treatment of Canada's Indigenous peoples by our country's European settlers. A half dozen of the 94 recommendations were for Canada's churches, one of which is this. We call upon the leaders of the church to teach the history and legacy of residential schools and the role of the church in that system the history and legacy of religious conflict in Aboriginal families and communities, and the responsibilities that churches have to mitigate such future conflicts and prevent spiritual violence. Now, we know that we won't get this 100% correct, but church leadership feels it best to address this vital part of our history rather than keep silent about it. I'm grateful for Cindy Wong, Burnaby school teacher, longtime 20-year attender of North Shore Alliance Church. She's passionate about the truth of the story and passionate about reconciliation with and for Canada's indigenous peoples. And Cindy approached me on this topic a year ago, and we've been planning for one year, and here she is now to help tell the story. Let's give it up for Cindy. I think you're good. Good morning. First of all, I'd just like to say I'm no expert in truth and reconciliation and the work that goes around it, but I am, I am very passionate about it. And so I think it's important for us as a church to come together to um, acknowledge Canada's history. The truth about stories is actually back it up a little bit. I'd like to first acknowledge the territory that we're on today. So we gather this morning on the traditional unceded territories of the Squamish peoples. Now the truth about stories is that that's all we are. And that's from Thomas King. The story we're talking about this morning is about Canada's history of cultural genocide. Like any story, stories evoke emotion. It might be sadness, it might be hatred, it might be why are we talking about this? It was so long ago. Can't people just get over it already? It might be, I've been hearing about this at school so much, why are we doing this at church too? It might be, it's about time we're doing this at church, which is ultimately how I felt, and this is why Dave and I had been talking. So this story is important in so many ways, but the fact is, a lot of us didn't grow up with it. I didn't learn about it until well after I finished high school. And so we didn't have the privilege of knowing the history of Canada. Maya Angelou 
said that we do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, you do better. So this is our time to actually do better. And so with that, we're going to start with a video this morning that was created in 2017 for Canada 150. When they took me to a residential school, I remember the day walking toward that school with my mother. And it was a silent walk, and I was so afraid. 20 or 30 little kids herded into the showers. And then your body being painted in white liquid of some kind, your hair cropped and then doused in kerosene. And that was pretty traumatizing. The school held roughly 220 people, half boys, half girls, and we were segregated. If I was caught weaving at my uh, sister, there'd be a punishment for it. And, and so as a result of that segregation, I never really learned any social skills that young people should be learning as they grow up. From a religious and spiritual perspective, of course, the churches lobbied hard to convert indigenous people, aboriginal people. They said that we were heathen and pagan. They targeted language in those things we had learned through all of millennia to know where we came from, to know who we were, as something that had to be eliminated. Before that time, I lived in a place called Guayastems. They call it Guilford Island now. We harvested from the forest all of the animals that we needed to provide us sustenance. And from the ocean in front of us as well, all of the species of whales and mink and fish. And I had a connection to the environment around us. And so after having spent years in those schools, by the time we were ready to leave, most of us were pretty broken. Many of us, including myself, descended into addictions, alcoholism, and violence, and it was pretty pretty uh, difficult. Those schools lasted for over a hundred years. There were over 150,000 little children. And the last school that closed in Canada was in 1996 in uh, Saskatchewan. There was a history on this land that had been absolutely ignored. Nobody knew about the residential school legacy. Nobody knew about the intent of the Indian Act, the chronic challenges now facing Aboriginals. And we're starting to uh, accept the idea that we have the shared history for which we all are responsible for. When the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report was uh, submitted, I was in the room when Justice Murray Sintler, the chair of the commission, denounced Canada. He had just recited a litany of intensive harms against Aboriginal people. And, and when he said, Canada, you have committed cultural genocide, there was just a silence in that room, and then all of a sudden it erupted in euphoria. We said, survivors want an apology from the Prime Minister in the House of Commons. And I was there and I heard the words, I'm sorry, and then I couldn't see because my eyes were just flowing with tears. I was so happy that somebody had said, I'm sorry. Canada, by the way, is the only Western country 
that has had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So we're trying to look through a new lens. We and Canadians, we as an Aboriginal, we celebrate each other, everybody cheering each other up as we move toward a more equal, prosperous future for all of us. My name is Chief Robert Joseph, and I believe that Truth and Reconciliation is Canada. So wherever we find ourselves on the emotional spectrum this morning, the intent of this morning is not for us to feel guilt. It is for us to hold this discomfort so that we could move forward, so that we can hold each other with more compassion as a local community and as a church community. But how, in fact, did this begin? Territory, right? It always begins with territory. Whose land is this? The fact is, in BC, majority of our land continues to be unceded territory. This was not signed over to Canada nor to Britain. Yet, when BC joined Confederation, it was just assumed that this land was already handed over. And who was it taken from? It's not a single Indigenous community we're talking about here. We're talking about a vast number of nations, and the diversity of Indigenous communities is incredible. As of 2016, the Canadian census actually states that there are 70 languages, 70 indigenous languages spoken across Canada, and 633 nations. And that's after many, many, many have already been decimated and no longer exist. And so this is important because we're not talking about a homogenized community here. We're talking about a diversity that is difficult for me to even comprehend. And yet it was because the Canadian government did not recognize the value of diversity that assimilation was viewed to be necessary. And so that is why there were strategies like residential schools and like the 60s scoop that were implemented, and that's only two of them. There are so many more, but those are the two we'll touch on this morning. So when we're thinking about residential schools, John A. Macdonald said we had to take the Indian out of the child, and that was the purpose of residential schools. Assimilation was the key. Residential schools existed from 1870 until 1996. And so in 1920, Duncan C Campbell Scott, Minister of Indian Affairs at the time, said, he want, I want to, this is a direct quote, I want to get rid of the Indian problem until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic. And there is no Indian question and no Indian department. Residential schools were not just boarding schools. It was not for the sake of education. It was to take children away from families and community. In 1920, it became mandatory that all children from four years old to 16 years old be removed from community to be put into these schools where they could only speak English or French. If they were found speaking their own tongues, there would be reprimand. Not only that, but we now know that physical abuse was commonplace. Sexual abuse, 
sexual assault, forced abortions were common. Children were used for medical experimentation, and the list goes on. Families became void of their children, parents, grandparents, to not hear children's laughter, to not be woken up by children's crying. And that happened overnight with Indian agents going into homes. The 60s scoop was another strategy that was used. Because now that indigenous families were deemed unfit to take care of their own children, the government decided that children needed to be in the hands of European descent families, families of European descent. So where does this leave us? What do we do with this story? It is not guilt that we need to sit in. We didn't do this. This is historical. But what it does mean is we need to not be complicit in the acts of today that continue. That we hold a little more space for people's stories. That we hold a little bit more space for the hurt and compassion and have compassion for other people's stories. And so those are the decisions that we need to make. Thank you, Cindy. I feel called to lead us now in some confession and repentance. So we come to this dark part of our nation's and our church's history, and we come with humility and some fear and trembling, for we are treading on sacred ground that involves sin of the most egregious kind, the devaluation and gross mistreatment of God's humanity. And it begins with, we are sorry. Because we, the church of all denominations, have played a major role in the cultural genocide of Canada's indigenous peoples. And we acknowledge the sobering truth that much of the mistreatment of Canada's indigenous peoples was done under the authority of the Christian church and in the name of Christian mission. And this was wrong. To God, who created all peoples with dignity, love, and value, and whom we have greatly misrepresented, we are sorry. And to Canada's indigenous peoples, our indigenous peoples, including Aboriginal, Inuit, and Métis, whom we have sorely wronged, we are sorry. Let's take some moments now for silent reflections on these confessions.
invite you now to stand. And if you are comfortable, please feel free to pray this prayer of repentance along with me. O Lord, we turn from our sinful ways of mistreating your precious humanity. O Lord, help us to treat all peoples, all of your creation, with respect, love, and value. In the name of Jesus, amen. You can take a seat. Now we ask for your engagement, the engagement of your mind and your heart as we navigate our Sunday services this month around the topic of learning from the stories of our indigenous friends. And today we begin with the incredible story of my good friend Brian Lysak. Brian, come and join me up here on the platform. Brian and I have been friends for 10 plus years. Uh, we share something really special. One of the first times I met him, I realized that we were born one day apart. I'm born February 12th. I'm older. <laughs> February 12th, 1969. And Brian was born February 13th, 1969. And we both celebrated our 50th birthdays last year. And Brian has an incredible story to tell. And uh, he's He's become a really good friend of mine. Many of you might know Brian uh, from Coffee Time and part of our church community. So, Brian, let's start with a little bit of your story, your early history. Okay. Who are your parents? Uh, I was born to Edna and Brian Wagner. Um, I was born at 177 Colony Street, Winnipeg, Manitoba. And tell us about the ethnicity of your parents. My mom is uh, 100% Aboriginal and my dad is colored. All right. And what happened when you were born? I was born premature. Uh, I was born underweight, and uh, I had respiratory problems. Because of my illnesses, my parents were forced to... They, I was apprehended by Child and Family Services. And you were taken away? Yes. As part of the 60 Scoops generation? Yes. Uh, Brian's a 60 Scoops survivor. This is a new term for maybe people that you haven't heard that before, it's a new term in the last three or four years. I've come into play with it because there's a number of my Coffee Time friends who are yes. 60 Scoop survivors, Brian being one of them. And so, Brian, you were adopted out of an Aboriginal family, taken yes. and adopted into a white European family. Yes. All right? And part of that story... Uh, is quite funny because you said you said something about your potential adopted mother who happened to work for child welfare and she fell in love with you. Tell us about that. Yeah, she uh, saw the back of my head and uh, the story was is uh, when she saw the back of my head, she fell instantly in love with me and uh, she took care of me and then uh, after a little while, they decided to adopt me as her child. So. That's great. I think this section over here is going to fall in love with the back of your head. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. It's really cute, actually. It is. Quite, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a great story. So you were adopted into a white family, and yes. there was some good parts of that. Silver lining is you got a, a, you, they helped you get a good education, and yeah. they nurtured you a little bit. Um, but that was also challenging. You've said to me several times, growing up in an all-white part of Manitoba, and particularly Winnipeg, yes. was challenging for you coming from an indigenous background. Yeah, I, I was immediately when I was in school, I was put in the back of the room into a, like a cubicle and, and kind of like put aside. And 
you know, I, I, the only reason why I didn't have struggles learning is because my adopted dad was a school teacher, so I, I picked up whatever I wasn't taught in school at home. So let's talk about that. You were the only Aboriginal student in your class, and you were put in a corner in a cubicle. Why? Uh, just because of the color of my skin. There was only one other Native person in the whole school at that time, and uh, we were both treated, mistreated very badly. So. I know you said you were subjected to name-calling. Yeah, I was called a dirty Indian and made to feel less than my whole life. All right. That's a very painful part of your story. Yes. Um, you, you go on to talk about, often you've said, and I know this firsthand, we'll get yeah. into that later, but you became a fighter. Yeah, well, because it was easier to fight than to, to deal with the problems with my mouth because I, I didn't know how. I didn't know how to interact properly. So you had to fight, you said, every day at school. Yeah, because I, I was always made to feel less than because of the color of my skin. So, Brian, uh, you early on got involved in addiction, struggling with addiction, like we saw in the video. For many people come from an indigenous background with all the pain and trauma addiction becomes a way of coping. So tell us about how you got into addiction and why you kept in it for decades of Decades, your life. yeah. Um, I started drinking at nine. My older brother, who was 10 years older than me, uh, he, he used to supply the alcohol. And uh, uh, in my teen years, it was my dad that introduced me to cocaine. And uh, I, I kept me into a prison within myself for a very, very long time. You said you began drinking to fit in. Can you talk a bit more about that? Uh, yeah, because it was easier to, because that was the only time that people had really seemed to accept me is when I was drinking with them. And, and it was easier to fit in that way than to be sober and feel like an outsider, because right? nobody likes to feel like they're outside of the circle of life. You also said to me, and I know this is a sensitive topic, but you said that you felt like you kept drinking because you wanted to live up, you felt like you pressured to live up to the profile of your skin color too. Yeah, that's so true. It's like when, when, when that's all you see around you, it's easier to fit in that way, right? And you, you don't really see the truth because you, you're so fi filled with alcohol and negativity that you don't really see the truth. And you live to the ceiling that the world puts around you in some ways, right? Well, if you only have a flower pot to move, you, you're, you're going to be as big as a flower pot, right? Yeah. And you also, kind of this dual struggle with alcohol and crime. Yeah. You got into crime early on. You did time in prison, yes. in and out of prison. Um, tell us how you got into crime and why you kept going back to it. Well, because those were the only people that really seemed to accept me. And uh, it was a misconception in my own head that uh, those people really were there for me. When uh, we pushed came to shove, they weren't either. But... Uh, that's a whole other story, but it was like the only way I really seemed to fit in was when I was with them and, and doing bad things. And, you know, I, don't, I didn't like the life of negativity, but that's where I was, was at, and I, I couldn't help it. You also said to me that there's a certain comfort in crime and going back to prison all the time. Well, it was easier to deal with that little cubicle than to deal with the whole world. Because everybody was seemed to be owed after you, and when you're in in a cell, the only person that's owed after you is you. Can you talk a little bit? You've already talked about how you've been treated as an Indigenous Canadian. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about how you would like to be treated? Well, you know, when I used to 
panel and busk. I wanted people to see me for me, but first I had to see me for me. Yeah. And that was huge. Amen, brother. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about the statement you made to me one time? I have felt like a fugitive in my own country. Well, yeah, because like, they, they put you in a box, and then once you're there, you're running away from even yourself. It's, it's such a vicious circle. As a 60 Scoop survivor, I know the government now is doing a lot of study in this. There's been lots of court cases. What, how do you feel you should be compensated by the Canadian government as a 60 Scoop survivor? Well, I, I'm still battling that myself. Like, uh, I'm still trying to get recognized because they say that because I didn't have my status and I'm still applying for it, that I, I don't qualify. So, you know, I've always been in that little box and it's, it's a horrible feeling. But, you know, it is what it is. You can't get past it. So you were removed from your native culture at birth and you were raised in a largely white culture yes. for assimilation purposes. But recently you've reconnected with your indigenous roots can you yeah. talk about that experience? Yeah, well, uh, I started working for the White Buffalo Spiritual Society in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I learned how to build teepees. I learned how to sing Paolo and uh, do a few songs. I'm now a, a pipe carrier, so that was something really huge. Yeah, it's cool to be able to reconnect with your, with your roots. That's a powerful thing. So let's now turn the page, Brian, to your spiritual journey. Uh, I just have to pause and say to everybody here today, okay? I was laying in bed last night. I couldn't sleep very well. I, was cal- I love numbers. I was calculating my career. Started as a pastor at 23. I figure I'll work till 65, 42 years. And I figure I'm right now about my 28th anniversary. So I'm two-thirds of the way through my ministry career as a pastor, okay? I, I love numbers. I'll have to say I'm sitting right here today with the greatest miracle of God's transformation in someone's life of any person that I have witnessed in 28 years as a pastor. So this is a great story of God's transformation. If God can transform Brian, he can transform anyone on earth. I have to say that. So, yeah. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> so let's start with the early part of your spiritual journey. You're an altar boy yeah. when you're a little boy. When you're a teenager, young adult, you even run into the great Mark Coop on the streets of Winnipeg through a ministry called Meeting Place, and you reconnect with Mark 10 years ago back here, and you think, there's a familiar face at North Shore Alliance, a guy I met on the streets of Winnipeg, kind of wild. So tell us about how God was wooing you through those early experiences. Well, it was was the music that got got me, and it was... uh how I wound up going to the meeting place in the first place was a hope for a coffee at the time I was homeless. And uh, when I went to have coffee there, um, the music spoke to me and it kind of kept me close to God. Like I always believed in God. I just didn't believe in myself. You said God was there, but you knew he'd be there when you were ready, but you weren't ready. (laughs) No, I didn't answer the door at that time. (laughs) So you end up in Vancouver and you walk into coffee time 10 years ago here, all right? And I did clear these adjectives with Brian before yeah, I'm sharing this. So he showed up angry, manipulative, arrogant, often drunk, sometimes violent. He and I even got into a few physical dust-ups. True. I had to call true. the cops. I think Stuart Bailey and I were holding them back a few times. I had, I had to call the cops on Brian once or twice. 
How did God take you from being a drunk, homeless busker at the old Shoppers Drug Mart in Lonsdale to now? Well, uh, it happened was one day I prayed to God and I said, God, I had enough. I really had had enough of being that life. Uh, it's so tiresome. And uh, he took it all away. I uh, just came up on nine years of sobriety. And uh, God, God took away the desire. And I Can you meant, can say that again? He took away the desire to drink. And, and the social aspect of that was just eliminated. It was super huge, you know. And it was through the wonderful people here at the North Shore Alliance that I was able to really feel like I belonged anywhere. So cool. We'll get back to that a bit. I, I've seen a radical transformation in just your, your, how you talk, how you act, how you carry yourself. It's the work of the Spirit. You said it to is. me on Friday when we met for coffee, God has hum- had to humble my mouth. I had to get out of my own way. Good U2 song, Get Out of Your Own Way. Yeah. You know, I love you too. Um, God has humbled your mouth. I, I, I confirm that. What do, what do you mean by that? Well, because like sometimes, like even I, I just went back to work recently, and uh, when the, somebody was doing something negative, and rather than God just stopped me from saying something, and I just kind of paused there, and I, a little bit of time went by, and I realized that I didn't even need to feel that way. That it all worked itself out, and that I, that's really when I realized I had gone out of my own way. And I think a lot of people need to do that for themselves. Yeah, I also see how God has humbled you. I don't hear the big talk and uh, the all talk, no action stuff that I used to hear from you before. And God has really done a deep work in your life, Brian. It looks yes. good on you, brother. Oh, I wouldn't, you couldn't you. have done it without you guys. <laughs> so uh, what's been your experience with the Christian church in recent years? Well, this like being here at the at the at, the, at this church has uh, really felt me made me feel closer to God. Um, I've never felt like I belonged anywhere before, and I do belong here. You know, the people and that I've managed to touch my life here have been just incredible, and I, I couldn't imagine my life without them in my life. Awesome. I was also. Brian and I met on Friday after he finished his shift in construction work downtown. We met at the Key. It was really cool. (laughs) A year ago, Brian could hardly walk. He was in chronic pain. We were praying for him every week at coffee time for God's healing. And now he's been back working the last few months or a few weeks. weeks. Yeah, a couple weeks downtown. How's that been going back to work? Well, you know, it's incredible. Like, I feel so happy and free that I'm able to do these things and that I really don't have any pain because God really does take it away if you ask him. Yeah. We prayed multiple times <laughs> and you're working a construction job downtown yeah. now. That's amazing. <clears throat> thank, the, thank the Lord for that. Um, so any final things to say? Uh, are there, there are a couple people I know that have yeah, had a huge yeah. impact on your life in our church. Some are no longer with us. Yeah, Alma and uh, Margaret and Steve and Mike and you know, just so many wonderful people here that have touched my soul. That it's beyond my expression that for me to just say thank you because without you, I wouldn't be me. Yeah, amen. Thank you, Brian, for sharing oh, your story. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. man. <laughs> we love mm. you, man. <laughs> Let's stand together. I just want to pray for Brian. Let's stand together. Worship team, you can come and take your place too. Oh God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your power to transform a life. 
We thank you, God, for how you have rescued Brian and you have revealed yourself to him. Lord, we thank you, God, for your powerful healing. Thank you for taking him out of a life of addiction and crime and bringing him uh, to our church community. We thank you, God, for bringing him the gift of salvation and forgiveness. We thank you, God, for taming his tongue and changing his persona. Thank you, God, for healing his body and making it possible for him to go back to work. And God, we just want to pray that you continue to bless Brian. God, we pray for your continued healing from the trauma that he's experienced in his life. And people, Lord, in our country who have experienced similar trauma, we ask God boldly that you would bring your miracle of healing and transformation for others too. And we ask God that you might use Brian. Lord, you blessed him. Would you now make him a blessing to others, particularly other indigenous peoples, Lord, who can see you through Brian's story and find hope too. And so, Lord, we just want to bless Brian today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.